Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. On tonight's episode, we're going to be discussing a terrible murder of a young mother that went cold for over a decade before one dedicated detective was finally able to provide her family with some answers. But whether or not they got real justice, that'll be up to you to decide. As usual, this episode is brought to you by my wonderful Patreon supporters. Welcome to my newest Patreon supporter, Nicholas. All of my Patreon supporters get a variety of perks, including bonus episodes, of which I just put number five up about two days ago, and it's about the murder of Breck Bedner. Other than that, Patreon supporters get other perks, such as swag from me and goodies on various holidays such as upcoming Valentine's Day. So if you are interested, just click the link in the show notes and check out what each level has to offer. If you'd like to do a one-time donation, you can click the PayPal link in the show notes and everybody that donates $4 or more is going to get a sticker of your choice and a card from me. I really appreciate all of my supporters. You guys are fantastic. I'm really working on getting more bonus content out to you quicker. And uh, yeah, so should be another one of those in the can uh, within the next couple of weeks. I'm also working on newer designs and we'll have some more products up in the store sometime in the next couple of months. So I'll let you guys know about that. Before we hop into tonight's main story, I wanted to tell you guys about a weird uh, sort of arson spree that's been going on in Anchorage, though it's not necessarily all done by the same person, but with such a relatively rare crime, we've had it happen to some buildings quite a bit recently. So on January 26th, Somebody set fire to a partly constructed courtyard by Marriott Hotel that was thankfully uninhabited and was totally destroyed, costing the, or causing damage around $20 million. 
And then just this past week on February 4th, someone set fire to Yakitori's sushi restaurant, which caused a ton of damage. And then just a few days later on the 7th, another restaurant called Noodle World, which is like just a couple doors down from Yakitori's, was also set on fire, causing a ton of damage. Authorities are making a connection between the last two of those, and there is actually a suspect uh, that was caught on camera that has not been detained, but they know his name. It's John Vang, and there was another suspect as well, but they weren't able to see his face. However, both of the guys during the fire on Monday caught on fire. <laughs> uh, one of them was burned, says in the quote, lower, lower part of his body. And the other one uh, had his glove catch on fire. So I'm assuming that they will be caught sometime soon because someone will notice that they have unexplained extreme burns on their body. And that fire that they set uh, apparently totally gutted that restaurant. So that's Horribly sad for the business owners. I don't know if it's just these two guys doing all these fires, but that's a really bizarre crime, and I don't understand what a person gets out of that, so I just hope it stops soon. I just wanted to bring that uh, current event news story to you guys because I thought it was really bizarre. But with that out of the way, let's get into tonight's episode. This is the story of the murder of Jenny Tetpon. On March 22, 2000, a delivery driver heading up remote Arctic Valley Road a few miles north of Anchorage saw some discarded items in the snowy ditch next to the road. He pulled over to have a look at the items, and he saw that there were some garbage bags of stuff, a set of crutches, and a sleeping bag. When he went over to open the sleeping bag, he was horrified to discover the body of a young Alaska Native woman. The woman would initially be a Jane Doe because she had no identification on her when she was found. And an autopsy revealed the horrible truth that she had died as a result of over 30 stab wounds. She also had many self-defense wounds on her hands and had obviously put up an incredible fight against her attacker. There was no evidence of sexual assault, but they were able to recover DNA evidence from underneath of her nails that they knew would likely lead to her attacker. Law enforcement took the victim's fingerprints and they got a match in the system. The victim was 28-year-old Genevieve Tetpon. They were now faced with the horrible task of delivering the tragic news to her family. Genevieve's mother, Pat, was utterly devastated, as were her many family members, all of whom she was very close to. Even worse was that they found out that Genevieve had left behind four young children. Her family described Genevieve, who went by Jenny, 
as always having a smile on her face and being someone that did absolutely everything in her power to make her kids happy and to make sure that they had a good life. She had been a single mother for a couple of years after leaving a tumultuous marriage, and it had been a bit of a hard time for her. She had struggled to make ends meet and provide for her kids, but her family said she had always been optimistic that life would get better. By the time of her death, she and her ex-husband were long over, and he was able to be ruled out as a suspect early on in the investigation. Detectives did not have much to go on initially. Jenny had been a hardworking single mother who didn't seem to have any enemies, much less one that might want to kill her in such a brutal manner. They also had to wonder why someone had dumped her body within view of the road when they could have easily expended very little extra energy to put her body somewhere that she might never be found. They also had to look at the other items that had been disposed very close to her that seemed likely to have been dumped at the same time. There had been a pair of crutches that had the name Higgins written down the side, a name which, when ran by Jenny's family, didn't ring a bell. There had also been a black garbage bag full of various pieces of trash and several items of paperwork that detectives meticulously sorted through. Contained within the pile of paperwork that had been thrown away were several bills and emails that all contained the same name, Alana Tuffle. They were able to track down Alana Tuffle and found that she was a middle-aged teacher who lived in Anchorage, several miles away from where the body had been found. She was married to a local pastor, and the couple had two children. By all accounts, they were a respected and much-liked family. When law enforcement went to her house to speak with her, Alana appeared to be legitimately nonplussed as to why her trash would be found near the body of a murder victim. Neither she nor her husband had any connection at all to Jenny or her family and were extremely befuddled. They also didn't know anything about the crutches or the last name Higgins. However, after thinking about it, Alana came up with a possible explanation. She told detectives that months prior, her car had been broken into and some items had been stolen. She wondered now if someone had stolen some of her personal paperwork and then disposed of it at the dump site for some reason. She was able to direct them to a police report she had filed about the break-in so that her story was quickly corroborated. Now that they had met a dead end with that seemingly hopeful lead, they went back to the drawing board and decided to take a closer look at Jenny's close family and friends. They spoke to her relatives a little bit more and found out that she had recently become engaged to a man named Ken Gisler. He had actually just proposed to her on Valentine's Day, about a month prior to her death. Jenny had been ecstatic about the engagement, even though the two of them had a bit of a bumpy relationship. 
and Ginny's family had been pretty unimpressed by him and weren't really excited about the relationship. Law enforcement immediately set out looking for Ken Gisler, but they found that he no longer lived at his last known address. They contacted his known associates, one of whom agreed to talk to them. His name was Grady Keppel, and he was a really good friend of Ken's. He told them, of course, that he believed that Ken could never commit such a heinous crime. And then he dropped a surprising bit of information. He revealed that just a few weeks after proposing to Jenny, Ken had actually broken up with her and taken up with another woman. Jenny had been devastated, and the two had argued over the ring that he had given her. He had been demanding that she return it to him, and Grady wasn't really sure what came of the argument, but law enforcement also happened to notice that there was no ring present on Jenny's body when she was found. While questioning Grady at his home, they noticed a sleeping bag on a nearby shelf that looked exactly like the one that Jenny was found in. Upon further inspection, they saw what looked like bloodstains on the bag and were later confirmed to be from Jenny. Grady claimed the bag had been left at his house by Ken, and law enforcement was now more determined than ever to track Gisler down for questioning. They next went to a hotel where Gisler had recently been employed, but he appeared to have quit his job. Law enforcement decided to search the entire building for evidence since they still had no clue as to where Jenny had actually been murdered. They found nothing to help the investigation, and it was just another dead end. Not long later, they found out that Ken had confronted Grady about him speaking to the police, and he had got incredibly angry. He was certainly acting like a guilty man. Law enforcement tracked down the address of Gisler's new girlfriend and paid her a visit. Upon learning of the reason for their visit, she was instantly combative, claimed Ken was not there, and refused to answer any questions. However, at just that moment, Gisler made his presence known by bolting out the back door of her house. He actually managed to evade the, the police and took off on foot. Police decided to canvas the neighborhood to search for him and also to take the chance to interview all of his neighbors. One neighbor told them that she had witnessed a loud argument between Ken and Jenny recently, and that Jenny had ended up leaving with another man named Leonard Will, who had a long rap sheet. When they found him, he stonewalled them and said that he had picked Jenny up to get her away from Ken and never saw her again. However, he ended up having a concrete alibi for the night of her murder, and this was just another dead end. Still on the hunt for Gisler, law enforcement soon got information that Gisler's vehicle had been involved in a hit-and-run crash with another vehicle on the night of Jenny's death. They found the other driver and questioned him, and he stated that Ken had crashed into his car, had seemed extremely agitated, and had just run off from the crash site on foot. Seems like he does that a lot. Luckily, Ken's vehicle had been impounded, and was now available for law enforcement to thoroughly search it for evidence. Circumstantial evidence was really stacking up against Ken Gisler, 
They just needed to find him so they could actually question him. It would not be until six months after Jenny's murder that law enforcement was finally able to track him down when he was arrested during a bar fight. They were totally expecting a slam dunk now that they had their prime suspect in custody, but it wasn't going to be that easy. Ken had an explanation for every bit of evidence against him. Jenny and he had actually gone camping months earlier and she had gotten menstrual blood on the sleeping bag. He had run away from the car crash because he was driving without a license. He was adamant that he had nothing to do with Jenny's death. His vehicle had also revealed absolutely no evidence of a crime. And finally, he readily volunteered his DNA, which ended up completely ruling him out as a suspect. Law enforcement was now back at square one and had absolutely no idea where to go next. Within just a few weeks, the case would take another bizarre turn. Just six months after Jenny's murder, another Alaska Native woman was discovered brutally murdered. It was Della Brown, whose case I discussed in episode 16. Law enforcement now had to wonder if the same person had been responsible for the deaths of both women. Although Jenny had been stabbed and Della had been beaten, there were enough similarities between the two women that the possibility of a serial killer was beginning to seem like a real possibility. As I also previously discussed, there were several similar murders of Alaska Native women between 1999 to around 2005. And for the next several years, Jenny would remain on that list of unsolved murders, which many in law enforcement and the community thought had all been committed by one sadistic killer. After Della's murder, law enforcement began to truly hunt for a serial killer. However, Della's case would eventually branch off in a totally different direction than Jenny's, when a suspect was arrested who was quickly ruled out as a suspect in Jenny's case through DNA testing. The months and years continued to pass and Jenny's case went cold. Jenny's children became teenagers raised by her family members, and Jenny's family and friends began to wonder if they would ever get an answer as to who had taken their wonderful Jenny from them. Nine years after Jenny's murder, her case began to come back to life when a new detective named Detective Cordy, who was looking at several cold cases, including hers, decided to start over from the beginning. He looked at every single piece of evidence in her case with fresh eyes, and eventually he noticed something that the original detectives had missed. Hidden in Alana Tuffle's trash was a small but very important clue. Alana had stated that the paperwork was likely stolen during a break-in of her vehicle about three months prior to the murder. But when Detective Cordy checked all of the dates on the stolen paperwork, he saw that several were dated within just a few weeks of Jenny's murder. So he now had to figure out exactly how the paperwork had ended up at the scene of the murder 
since it obviously hadn't been stolen three months prior. He got back in touch with the Tuffles. Alana had moved out of state by now and was really unable to give any further answers than she had previously. They then brought her husband in for questioning. He easily gave a sample of his DNA for comparison, which excluded him as a suspect. However, this time around, Cordy was able to glean more information about the couple's sons, who had been teenagers at the time of the murder. The older one had been out of state at college, but the younger one, Derek, had been a 17-year-old high school student who occasionally used his parents' car. He had been a great student who had also worked as a manager at a pizza restaurant in town during high school. Law enforcement could not find a single connection between him and Jenny. Despite all of that, they were running out of leads and they knew that they had to question him. Nine years on from the murder, he was a married father and football coach and he had no real criminal record to speak of. He was friendly and easygoing with the detectives, but said that he didn't really know much about the case other than what his parents had mentioned or that he had heard on the news. As soon as the detectives broached the question of him providing a DNA sample, his demeanor totally changed, and he gave a very bizarre response, stating that he had to ask his mom and that, quote, my mom is going to be mad that you're asking for my DNA. He claimed that he would contact them the next day, but oddly enough, he never called them back. So law enforcement was forced to get a warrant for his DNA. When the test finally came back, it would conclusively prove that it was indeed Derek Torian's DNA that was found under Jenny's fingernails. In early 2011, Torian was arrested in Spearfish, South Dakota, where he'd been living. Strangely enough, the 10,000 population Spearfish was the setting for a previous case I discussed in episode 22. Torian would soon be extradited to Alaska, where he was allowed to post bail while on house arrest living with his father. Derek would eventually confess to what he described as a minor part in the murder. He claimed that on the night of Jenny's murder, he was at work at the restaurant. He confessed that he had actually been dealing drugs out of the restaurant and was doing some after-hours transactions when Jenny walked in to get pizza. Derek claimed that he panicked that she had seen the drugs and was going to call the cops. Conveniently, he said that he left the room for a moment while his co-worker murdered Jenny and that he had heard absolutely nothing despite the fact that she had been stabbed more than 30 times. Even more conveniently, the co-worker he was blaming had died in the nine years since the crime. I couldn't actually find a name for this guy, so I guess he will just have to <laughs> remain nameless. Derek claimed that he only helped his friend dispose of her body, and in doing so, his DNA somehow ended up under her fingernails. So not only is he blaming the brutal crime on someone that could no longer defend themselves, but 
there hadn't even been any evidence of a second person being involved in the crime at all. And I don't know how DNA would end up under someone's fingernails if they're already dead. Derek also admitted that he had been the one to dump the crutches, which he had borrowed from a friend, and the trash of his mother's, but he had no real good explanation for why he did this. Let's just say he's not a very intelligent person. Though he was initially charged with first-degree murder, prosecutors, for some reason, decided to make a deal for a manslaughter conviction because they somehow weren't convinced that they would get a guilty verdict. So after the long ordeal of the police investigation, Jenny's family had finally thought they were getting some justice for her, but Derek was sentenced to a mere 15 years in prison. And the two years that he spent on an ankle monitor went towards that time. He will be eligible for parole as early as 2021. I don't know about you, but these kind of sentences make me super angry. And also, I don't know what else the prosecutors need to think that they're going to get a guilty verdict. I mean, they have actual DNA evidence on the victim's body from the suspect. It just makes me super sick and sad that her family didn't get the justice that they truly deserved. But you know what? I hope that he's being treated shitty in prison. And I'm assuming that his reputation has been damaged enough that he's not going to be able to maintain his coaching position at a high school. And yeah, that's pretty much all I can hope for. It is nice that Jenny got some answers and justice because there were so many other Alaska Native women murdered around the same time period that their cases are still unsolved and have gone very, very cold. And if you wanted to hear about those cases, I discussed them in the Joshua Wade series, so check that out. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Now it's a bit shorter than I'd like it to be, but I couldn't find a ton of information in this case, and I wanted to get you guys an episode out. So, thanks for listening, and have a good night.